everyone, and welcome to Name Drop San Diego, where we interview interesting people who have shaped our region. I'm Abby Hamblin, here with Christy Totten. If you've been following coronavirus news here in San Diego, you've probably come across the name Davy Smith. Dr. Smith is the head of infectious diseases and global public health at UC San Diego. His main research focus is HIV, but he's currently working on Operation Warp Speed. It's a federal initiative to develop COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. We talked to Dr. Smith about his work on the coronavirus and what he wishes people knew. We also talked to him about his travels and the strangest things he's eaten. Here's our interview with Dr. Davy Smith. Yeah, let's jump right in with this. Uh, you're Dr. Davy Smith. Why Davy and not Dave or David? So I am, my name is David Mitchell Smith III. So that means my dad is David Mitchell Smith Jr. And my granddad is David Mitchell Smith Sr. And uh, when you grow up in a small town, you're, you become whatever your family calls you. So there were too many Davids. So then I became Davy and uh, it stuck. <laughs> That's great. So you're working on an antibody treatment for COVID-19. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I am the, the chair for the National Institutes of Health protocol called ACTIVE2, and it, and it is a trial, what we call a master platform trial. So it has multiple different therapies that will be tested for COVID until we find one or two or three that actually work for COVID. And it's specifically in the outpatient setting. So these are people who are not sick enough to go to the hospital yet. And we're hoping that these treatments would prevent them from going into the hospital or dying. The first drugs that we're going to uh, test in this trial are called monoclonal antibodies. And they're specifically designed antibodies to target COVID. So they're not convalescent plasma. They're actually drugs that are antibody based for COVID. And those are the first ones we're going to test in this trial. I, I read that you also did a clinical trial using the anti-malaria drug that I can't really pronounce <laughs> paired with an antibiotic. Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. So the first thing uh, that started my work in COVID is back in January, I actually proposed to, to the National Institutes of Health to use a drug called hydroxychloroquine for the treatment or the prophylaxis of COVID. Um, and the reason I did that is we knew that it had antiviral activity in the Petri dish um, in the lab against COVID. And I really wanted to make sure that we figured out whether or not it worked, yes or no, in people. I didn't know, but I knew that it was so widely used in clinical practice that doctors were going to use it because they didn't have anything else to use and we had no science to back it up. So I tried to get a trial going quickly to figure that answer, to figure that question out uh, before it became used a lot. And, but unfortunately, uh, the government just moved too slowly to get that trial up and running to where we could get an answer for it. Um, but uh, the good news is that when they finally tapped me and my team to start working on it, they're like, okay, hydroxychloroquine, it's too messy at the moment. We really don't know how it's going to work. But these new treatments, such as these monoclonal antibodies, might actually work um, better. And we want you to lead those trials. So we set up a very, within six weeks, actually, we set up a whole program to be able to test these new um, therapies for COVID. Yeah, well, I just wondered what 
it is like to be a part of something that's such a global effort you know do you feel a lot of pressure to be in this sort of race for a treatment or a vaccine or you know is it for you is it just another day at the lab do i feel any pressure i feel enormous pressure um so there, there's two parts of the pressure that i feel one part is oh my gosh we're stuck in a viral pandemic and to get out of it um i really think that a treatment could really help like right now we have no real treatment for people who aren't already in the hospital and even the treatments we have for people in the hospital are kind of are not all that great so but if we had a treatment that kept people out of a hospital and dying so let's say you got covid and you got sick and you're like okay i can go get something and then that would keep me from dying or out of the hospital boy we could really have a different experience right what things could open up we could use that same treatment for um, preventing outbreaks etc so that that's been my goal all along is to find something very useful very effective for keeping people out of the hospital so that puts me under a lot of pressure <laughs> um both uh just here in san diego but my parents who are in their 70s back in tennessee where they're having a big bad problem getting them out of the house to go see their grandchildren <laughs> would be very important to them and to me and myself as well um, the other part that's an enormous amount of pressure is that uh, this trial called active 2 is actually um, under the auspices of a thing called Operation Warp Speed. And the name itself <laughs> it has a ton of pressure. And I am on calls basically from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. at night, almost every day, talking about organization of how to get these trials, trial sites open and get the data that we need to move forward with uh, finding a treatment. So when you're on calls with people whose first name starts with general or captain or admiral <laughs> that, that becomes uh, a wow. lot of pressure and daunting uh when do you think we'll have a vaccine i think that we will have an approved vaccine uh hopefully by the middle of next year um i i am skeptical that we will have anything that is proven by the end of this year and the reason for that is to prove that something works at a vaccine, then it has to be somebody mounts an immune response and that immune response protects them from an exposure. Um, so, and a lot of people, so you have to have a lot of people to show that there is um, significance in that observation. Um, and that's going to take a lot of time. It, and I think that we are working very hard to do those trials and with lots of people to get that information but even even in that setting it's going to take quite a bit of time is there anything that feels positive about those long calls like is there a collaborative sort of environment that you know lifts you up or supports you through this or is it just pure intensity every day <laughs> you know the best thing that i found in working all these trials with all these calls and all these trials and working with this large group um, is that we all have the same um, motivation we want to find a therapy as quickly as possible there is very little to no ego <laughs> and working in science all my life i've often found that science can uh, that egos can impede science and here that that is not part of the process it is let's pragmatically figure out what it takes 
in a rigorous science way to come up with the answer that can sort of get us all out of quarantine. <laughs> yeah, that kind of collaboration seems really incredible, like even on a global scale, like is this one of the more collaborative times in your career or is this just pretty normal for your line of work? For me, uh, collaboration has always been a hallmark of my career. I, I'm a collaborative researcher, and it's the thing that really makes me happy to go to work. <laughs> um, so this was sort of a perfect position for me. And I, you know, I think that I was chosen to be this protocol chair because I have a long history of collaboration, and I think that was obvious. And that's nice of them to pick me for that, and it's very much an honor. And right now we are opening sites across the world. So we'll have, I think about 20 sites open across the world within the next couple of weeks for this trial. And that means not just collaborating within the United States, but getting all these international partners. And I've worked internationally collaborative um, also throughout my career. In fact, my first big research grant was five different countries coming together. So it's sort of all circular <laughs> these days. Um, but it's really nice to see that it's a global research effort. We all want the same thing. We all want to, um, our, our antagonist is a virus and uh, we, are, we are all um, trying to fight that. Have you found it hard to get people to participate in the trials? Yes. So people, Right now, we are having a hard time getting people to participate in the trials. And one of the big efforts, uh, one of my calls every day is for our press, um, where we talk about uh, what is it the barriers uh, for people to participate in trials? What, how, do, how do they think about trials? How do they think about studies? And a few things that I've learned. <laughs> one, at the very beginning of this epidemic, we said, if you get sick, you go home, don't go out, don't talk to anybody. And now we have to change that script and say, hey, we need you really hard to come out and help us by um, participating in trials. You know, you're going to have to come out of your house or we're going to have to send nurses over. We're going to have to um, have you to do these things. So that's a change in messaging. And that's part of what we're trying with our press release. The, the other thing is um, just talking about studies in general. So one thing we've learned when I talk about a clinical trial, it sounds like it might be a legal thing, right? That we're doing a trial. So they're trying to talk me into saying study instead of trial, right? <laughs> the other thing that I learned was don't call yourself an investigator because that sounds like you are an <laughs> FBI informant or something. Call yourself a researcher. And th that's just a change in, you know, speech, vernacular language that is uh important for messaging that uh, me and my little scientific bubble maybe uh, wasn't good at. I've been dying to ask you about this ever since I read in June, uh, you did an interview with the San Diego Union Tribune where we work with our science reporter and you said about this pandemic and I sent this article to like everyone I knew, um, quote, I have a great sense that the public has a hard time figuring out what's going on because I also have a hard time figuring out what's going on, end quote. And you're the chief of infectious diseases at UC San Diego. And that both made me feel better and a little freaked out. So do you still feel that way? And kind of what was behind that quote? Uh, yeah, I feel that way uh, every day. <laughs> but, and the, the reason behind that quote was, oh my gosh, the science is moving so quickly, right? Every day there are 
new papers that show, okay, this is how long immunity lasts. And then the very next hour, there's a paper that says, oh no, it only lasts this part, right? And then we have to parse out, how did two really smart groups come up with different answers? Well, they just looked at it in a different way. Is it wrong? No. And putting those together, it gives us a better information. But um, let's just put this into perspective. We're in nine months, today's September 1st, into this pandemic, right? Maybe a little bit longer, 10, 12 months, 11 months. Um, in knowing that this virus uh, it can exist in humans. So our knowledge is really small compared to let's say HIV in terms of how our body reacts to it, how long the immunology is, how do we treat it, et cetera. So our knowledge is really small moving at enormous speed and for anybody to keep, keep up is almost impossible. And it's my job <laughs> to keep up <laughs> with all that research because it informs all these clinical studies that we're doing and we're generating that new knowledge every day. Um, but that's the reason actually that I'm talking to y'all now is because I think it is so important for the public and everybody to stay informed on these issues. And I need um, this, I need y'all to sort of help me explain what's actually going on with virus and viral research, et cetera, and how we, how we do things. I think part of the difficulty in following the guidance is just sort of knowing what it is. And, you know, as we're talking about, it changes a lot. But where do you go for trusted information? Where are you getting your news? Uh, that's a good question. So I get my news and my guidance uh, mostly from three places. I, I do go to the CDC. Um, and at the same time, I do uh, checks on the CDC with the state guidance. And uh, here in the county, we have a good public health department to talk about, um, provide some uh, public health guidance that's more relevant to um, California. Now, I'm in a funny position, right? Because I also help consult with San Diego Unified for opening up schools. I, I talk to, the, I have friends at the health department who want my guidance on looking at uh, some of this uh, data, that some of the data that come out or within the UCSD school system, et cetera. So, Part of my job is to also look at the data uh, for epidemic trends and say, okay, when and where do we need uh, to lock down or is this now safe or is this no longer safe? And th those sorts of um, things uh, have expertise in so I, I can take a different look at those data. I think on the same subject, we got an interesting question from a Twitter follower um, related to you saying you want to use this time to kind of really spread information and awareness. This comes from Christy with a K on Twitter. What's one of the things that you wish the general public knew about the virus that doesn't seem to be sticking or being communicated or is being miscommunicated? The biggest, that is a great question. The biggest thing that I would like to get across is it's a twofold part. One, I don't think that vaccines are going to save us all anytime soon. And two, I think that treatments are being overlooked. And if I had any encouragement is that if people were to become infected for them to really look for treatment trials because that is what's gonna get us out of this pandemic quicker. If we learned anything from the HIV epidemic is that treatment really works and can get us out of pandemics. We have no vaccine for HIV, but we have really good treatments and now we know that when we treat HIV, it doesn't spread. 
And the same thing will happen for this coronavirus. And people will live better and longer if we had a treatment. So I think that is our low-hanging fruit. That's what I would like uh, my message to be and for people to understand uh, the difference between those vaccines and treatments. That is so helpful. We've heard just, you know, vaccine, 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 race to get the vaccine when, uh, yeah, makes sense that treatments would be just as great. So your primary research focus is HIV. Uh, what are you working on currently? Yeah, so thank you. So my primary research is HIV um, and it has been for two decades, <laughs> um, longer maybe. Um, and uh, right now, my big exciting project is trying to figure out a cure for HIV and to figure out where HIV lives throughout the body. So my big research project is called the Last Gift Project. And this is basically where people who have HIV and doing fine on medications uh, develop a terminal illness such as cancer or heart disease or something that uh, only gives them about six months to live. So they're no longer going to die of HIV, they're going to die of something else, unfortunately. And they enroll in my study and we follow them in those few months before they pass away, um, take blood, etc. And then when they pass away, we do a rapid autopsy. And the reason we do that is we have to get all the tissues in their, across their whole body um, preserved as quickly as possible so that we can really understand how HIV lives in all their tissues, like the brain, the heart, the spleen, the liver. Um, once we understand how HIV lives in all those places, we're hoping to figure out how to unlock it so that we can uh, purge those reservoirs in otherwise healthy people. So that's, that's my big project at the moment. That sounds so heavy. Like <laughs> I know you're a scientist and a researcher, but I'm sure you, you know, you develop sort of relationships, you know, for, for these patients and, you know, they, they enroll with you knowing they don't have much time left. Like, how do you deal with that? It is uh, tough and yet super rewarding. Uh, the people who come in to our last gift study, the participants, um, we really bond with, of course, because we really talk to them, meet with them, learn about them. They learn about us. We have uh, really good relationships. And what we've, what we've learned along the way is that it, it gives them a lot of meaning to their life at, towards the end of their lives. Um, and uh, that is a very rewarding both to them and to my research team, right? We are giving something very meaningful back to someone who is at the end of their life. And um, I, I didn't realize when we started this project how uh, meaningful it was gonna be to me um, to have that contribution, um, but it, is, it, is, it has been quite, quite rewarding. What are the some some of the bigger things that you've learned throughout your research on HIV that if people wanted to know kind of what your legacy is like what how could you sum up some of the big discoveries or things you've been involved with trying to figure out about it? Oh wow. Um, the first thing that I did my claim to fame was actually figuring out how often people got infected with HIV more than once. <laughs> um, so a thing, a thing called HIV super infection, that was one of the first things that I, that I helped, uh, figure out. And it was kind of, it was a bummer because people, uh, getting HIV more than once really told us that an HIV vaccine wasn't going to happen anytime soon. That was almost 20 years ago. And that, that bore out to be true. What, what that told us is that if somebody's immune system couldn't 
which developed in the setting of HIV couldn't protect against another HIV infection, then we probably weren't going to mimic it with any of the vaccine candidates that we had at the time. So that, that was a bummer. Uh, other big ones that's kind of cool at the moment is we, we developed a lot of pooling techniques for diagnosing uh, HIV and HIV treatment failure. And what's interesting about that is our papers are now being cited for all this work with COVID. So getting COVID tests uh, have been difficult because there hasn't been enough of them. So people started using pooling techniques that we developed for HIV viral loads 10, 15 years ago now for coronavirus. So it's kind of nice to see how science works, right? You work on something, you put it out there in the literature, and then somebody else who's smart picks it up and says, hey, this is a really good idea for this problem. So, so I'm pretty excited about that. You've done a lot of research around the world. You know, you mentioned some of these COVID tests will be global too. Um, what do you learn from, uh, from, you know, doing global research that, that you wouldn't, you know, just doing it locally? Yes, that's, that's, that's great. So question. So when you do, when I do research across the world, what I, what I am inspired by is that there are scientists like me everywhere. We want to solve a problem and uh, we might look at it differently or we might look at it the same, but our goal is the same. And that, that, that's very inspiring um, and very uh, useful in the science process because we can then talk about our different views or our different backgrounds or our different research techniques to come up with solutions basically to the same problem. And the other thing is that HIV um, and actually like coronavirus and like infectious diseases in general, they tend to target the people who are most uh, underserved in our communities. So for HIV, you can think about um, gay men, um, people who might uh, use substances uh, for coronaviruses. It's uh, clearly among our um, African-American, our Latin, Latinx populations and older populations and they bear the brunt um, for uh, various infectious diseases. And when you go do collaborations throughout the world, you find exactly the same thing. And then you find these people who want to help those underserved communities. And that uh, builds some camaraderie around uh, researchers in the infectious disease community that uh, lends itself to um, making really good collaborations in science. Are there cultural differences in the way you might apply research or medicine? You know, I like I think of when we travel, there are different customs and different, you know, proper sort of ways to act in different countries. Is that something that you consider when doing your work globally? Oh, absolutely. When I first uh, when I first started doing research, um, we had projects in India and Africa and China and Romania and all those places did science so differently than what I was used to in the United States. I was an American. We had a problem to solve. I had a hypothesis to test. And it was less about building these relationships as it was to let's just get down and figure out how to get the data so we can get to the science. And then when I started traveling to these places and meeting my collaborators, I learned, boy, these human relationships need to be started off first rather than the scientific relationship. So I had to sort of back up and go, okay, <laughs> uh, this is how we build 
um, personal relationships that then lead into uh, scientific relationships. So we we kind of look all over for researching what we're going to ask on these questions. And I saw an old article where a colleague of yours who had traveled with you uh, said that you could be the host of Bizarre Foods on Travel Channel. So we wanted to ask what are some of the wildest foods you've eaten or, you know, kind of what makes you uh, such an interesting eater? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, that's a good question. So I grew up in... Uh, outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. I've had my fair share of uh, squirrel and rabbit and rattlesnake. And I think I've eaten, I have eaten a possum here or there growing up. What does it taste um, like? That's incredible. (laughs) I've never heard anyone say that sentence you just said. (laughs) Uh, Possum is really fatty and greasy. And um, yeah, it's definitely not my favorite. Um, Squirrel. Sounds good. Squirrel and rabbit are better, but uh, yeah, awesome. Depends, I guess, on how you cook it. Um, but uh, in my travels, one of the things that I learned is that the best way to sort of build a relationship is to have a meal with somebody and don't turn up your nose. And if I can eat possum, <laughs> um, I can eat fried hornets in uh, China. That's what they, they served me uh, one time or silkworms or... Katie Dids was another one that was very uh, interesting, and scorpions on a stick. Um, that was that was that was also uh, on the menu. Just uh, share meals and it and don't be uh, dissuaded by the food and have pre have no preconceived notions about the people or the food until you taste it um, or you meet that person. And I've learned to that I like uh, fried hornets, actually. They weren't, they weren't so bad. Um, uh, scorpions, I didn't really like it. It was, it was definitely not my taste. Um, but uh, I, I would have never known until I went in with an open mind. That's really cool. You really could have been the host of Bizarre Foods. I guess that's a, that's a backup. Once you, once once you I... cure HIV and figure out this COVID thing, yeah. I hope to see you on TV on your own food show. So just a little more about you. Uh, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, I like, I, like, uh, I like to write. I was actually, for a little bit of a time, an English major in college before I went to medical school. Um, and I'm in a writing group, actually, at San Diego, Inc. Um, and uh, I did a lot of poetry. And I still like to read, of course. And then... Um, my husband and I like to go camping and hiking and all that good stuff around San Diego. So, um, and then the other thing that I really do enjoy that I've missed is that uh, I'm not getting to hang out with my nieces as much as I would like. Um, so that puts a lot of pressure on me to figure this out <laughs> so we can get back to seeing them on a more regular basis. Does your family come to you for advice? Like, all the time about this stuff or do you try and like not when you're off work I can't imagine that you're married to someone in public health like how do you escape this thing (laughs) well luckily my husband and I don't talk about it too much um okay do you have like a rule or something like after seven no COVID talk I have that with my friends we don't we it's just an understood rule I think um especially after a long day and you know the other thing about your family is uh 
they only see you as that kid that grew up, right? My mom, my mom, uh, I am an infectious disease doctor and she still will tell me, but the doctor said that I don't have an ear infection. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, mom, I am an infectious. Um, so, but that's just, you know, families, right? Um, on your website, you have a list um, of failures and it includes degree programs you didn't make it into, grants that you didn't get. Why is it important for you to share that? Oh, wow, I can't believe you all found that. Uh, yeah, it's my CV of failures. Um, the reason I put my CV of failures online and for everybody, and I update it on a regular basis, is that um, going through this job is not easy. Um, and I've noticed a lot of people that I've trained or mentored along the way that they hit a roadblock. They don't get a grant. They don't get into a program that they wanted. And all of a sudden they think they're gonna be a failure. And they come to me and say, okay, I'm never gonna make it in academia like you um, because I just didn't get this grant or I didn't get this fellowship or whatever it is. I didn't get my paper in. And I have to remind them that, boy, <laughs> it's failure after failure after failure and a few successes along the way that sort of make it in this career. And I think that being open and honest about my own failures helps my mentees and my trainees and maybe people that I will never meet understand that it's okay, that failure is okay. It's just part of the process and try to be resilient <laughs> um, in, this whole, in this whole scientific thing. Yeah, that's, a, that's really powerful. I think it is, it is important to, to see that. And, you know, it, it feels like failure is a part of success is what you're saying. It, it, failure is absolutely a part of success in my job. And the other thing that I've noticed is that with Facebook and Instagram, only thing that people put out there are the successes, right? I did this great thing. And I want to show you all these great pictures about the great thing or great vacation that I had that we don't ever share about the down moments, the failures, what the grants and that I didn't get or the papers that I didn't get. Um, and those are important too, because that's part of the human experience. And we need, we need those as humans to understand that we don't have to be perfect to still succeed. Well, because of you, I think I'm going to make a list of failures and it's also my new goal to try possum. <laughs> I was just going to say, maybe we just started a new social media trend, hashtag I'm a failure, and you put that out there instead. No, but seriously, that's, I mean, I, I read, I think it was very interesting, three of the things that you listed were all, also seemed pretty personal. You had uh, misdiagnosed people, and one of them was yourself, one of them was your dad, and one of them ended up passing away. Um, you know, why put, first of all, what were those stories? Like, you tried to diagnose your dad and yourself. Um and then why share something so, I mean, I just thought that was amazing that you shared that. Yeah, one, that's a, thank you for reading that. Um, in medicine, it's even, it's even, I think it's probably one of the worst fields for having to be perfect. And that um, doctors are not allowed to mistake because the, doctors are not allowed to make mistakes because the consequences are so great. And that's true. We do not want doctors to make mistakes, but we have to learn from our mistakes and we have to show that we're human, that we're going to make those mistakes. So I train lots of medical students and residents and fellows every year. And by making that public, I say, hey, I'm human too. You're going to make mistakes. <laughs> you're going to make mistakes with your family. You're going to make mistakes with yourself and you're going to make 
mistakes that are going to eventually people are going to die from those and so i put them out there and say hey i'm also human i have made mistakes in my clinical career just as much as i have in my scientific career you told us before we started uh recording that you started as an intern at ucsd uh, and now you are very high up at the um, college what's some of the advice that you would give to you know interns like yourself or your previous self um, on on lasting so long at a place and you know landing the job that you put so much work into it sounds like you've really established yourself there but it's not easy to do so what how do you do that yeah um thank you so and i came to san diego in 1996 i graduated from medical school in east tennessee state university actually followed a different boyfriend here who was in the Navy. Um, that's how I got to San Diego and uh, did my internship, my residency, my chief residency, fellowship, et cetera. And each, each of those jobs, I did my best. And when, you, when I did my best, I was chosen for my next job to be the resident, to be the chief resident, to be the fellow. And then I joined uh, as junior faculty within the division and then um, just kept doing my job. And then one day they asked me to be the chief of the division. So um, that's how that's how I got it. But it really, for me, has been to put my head down and to do my job and to think um, also broadly about uh, what I wanted to accomplish in my professional uh, career at UCSD. And UCSD has really given me um, the support that I needed to grow in all those aspects. So because this um, podcast is called Name Drop, we like our final question to uh, be a name drop from our guest. You know, is there someone in this community, you've been here for a long time now, that you think, you know, has, has touched you or you think deserves a spotlight for any reason in particular? Oh, my gosh. That's such a hard question. Sorry to sabotage you that way. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> I have, have so many people, I have so many people running through my head. Um, I do have someone who I think, uh, who I look up more than I think she knows that I look up to her, but uh, there's a professor, her name is Susan Little. She runs the primary HIV program here at uh, UC San Diego and has for 20 some odd years. And so many of my faculty members are so great um, in the community. And I just want to call her out because she has led the charge for San Diego in terms of ending the HIV epidemic, understanding how HIV treatment works, et cetera, and has been just one of the biggest um, supporters and proponents of HIV research and um, care in San Diego and has really made uh, San Diego a better place for uh, people with HIV or at risk for HIV. That was the perfect name drop. <laughs> thank you so much, Davey, for joining us on, on Name Drop. Hey, thanks thank for, you. thanks for, this was fun. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Name Drop San Diego from the San Diego Union Tribune. If you like what you heard, please rate us on your favorite app. And let us know who you think we should talk to next. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at NameDropSD and on email at NameDropSD at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.